Welcome to the Overthinking It Downton Abbey Recap, American Part 8, British Christmas Episode Season Finale. People, this is the big show. The moment you've been waiting for since the premiere of this program has finally arrived. Paul Giamatti is a guest actor and hopefully more on Downton Abbey. Uh, also, there's a lot about Edward VIII, is it? And uh, the, uh, I guess, the presumptive accession of George VI. But before we get to that, let me introduce the panel. We have a panelist we haven't seen in a few weeks with us for this final Downton Abbey recap of the season. Ben Adams, how are you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm doing doing pretty well. You know, I'm back from uh, my my teapot dome scandal and fighting <laughs> off brown shirts in Germany. So I'm ready to uh, ready to podcast. Oh, that's I, can I say? I don't know if you've been following the recaps, but I am so disappointed, so disappointed that Lady Edith didn't punch one Nazi during this entire season of A Downton Abbey. <laughs> so disappointing. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, wait, so, Ben, you've been gone for a while. Give us the quick, give us the two, three-sentence impression you've had of this season of Downton Abbey and where you're coming from this recap uh, from which, from whence. I, I definitely agree with you guys that the uh, Anna Bates plotline just kind of dragged the whole season down. Uh, though I liked most of what was going on in the rest of the season. I thought Mary's had a nice little character arc and. uh well, Edith's the resolution here hasn't been great. Uh, I like what they've been doing with her as well. So it's been mostly good stuff here. Oh, great. Excellent. And Matt Rather's also with us today. Hey, Matt, how are you doing, Hello. sir? Hello. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm presented in London society. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> You've come out of the boudoir. I've as come out. <laughs> um, yes, and, and all, my, all my letters have been recovered. Oh, that's marvelous. That's excellent. Well, there's a couple of different angles we could approach this episode from, but maybe that's the one we have to start with, which is, what, uh, Grantham's Eleven? Is that what we've been calling it? The heist. (laughs) The Downton Abbey heist. The thievery of the Prince of Wales. And they never do refer to them by name in this episode, right? The Prince of Wales here is uh, Edward VIII. uh, Well, no, he will become Edward VIII. He will uh, become Edward VIII. Yeah, when he becomes king. But he's like he's a historical figure. He's not just this isn't like President Bartlett or what have you. These aren't like a fictional king and Prince of Wales that have been made up for the Downton Abbey uh, setting. These are actual British historical figures who are simply not referred to by name during the episode. Right. And they are George V as the king and uh, the Prince of Wales uh, who would become Edward VIII, who would famously rule for only a very little while before resigning due to his uh, relationship with a married woman or Duke so, of Duke of. Duke of Windsor. I, you Duke know what? Windsor. I forget exactly. I forget exactly what he was at the time. Whether the the Prince of Wales or the Duke of Windsor, but he is the he is the brother, the older brother of uh, Colin Firth in the yes. King's Speech. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So there is the question of whether saving this guy's bacon was a good idea at all, right? Uh, and whether we would all just be better off if Colin Firth became king that much sooner. Sparing Mr. Fenzel, we are monarchists. <laughs> Well, I'll leave that to you guys. You guys want to talk about the heist? I guess now that we've set the stage for what what's at stake, but uh, at least a little bit, right, in terms of preserving the scandalous man. I mean, this is basically like finding out that Bill Clinton was having sex with an intern when he was governor of Arkansas, right, and then deciding that you were going to cover it up in the hopes that this guy was going to go on to become a great president of the United States. 
right? Like, well, that's no, and not, and not quite. It's it's if you knew he was doing it as president elect or something okay. like that, and yeah. you wanted to you wanted to bury the scandal because he was inevitably going to become the president, you right. know. And so there there is this sense of inevitability that I think like weighs on the the moral calculus a little bit. Rather than not to poop on your your analogy there. Oh no no no! I, I was I, trying to give a better one. Go ahead, Ben. I think that analogy is interesting because this episode is one of the first episodes where we've really gotten. It's made a big point of contrasting the American point of view and the British point of view, and the, the arguably the difference in the Bill Clinton analogy is no matter when this comes out about Bill Clinton, you can just get another guy into the White House. Like, it's, it doesn't matter that it has to be William Jefferson Clinton that is president of the United States. Somebody else can go do the job, and the system keeps on chugging along nicely. Whereas in the monarchy system, that's not the case. It's not like somebody, it's not like if the scandal brings him down, there's going to be another Prince Edward that's going to take his mantle on as the new prince. It's just the scandal will just last and last and last right it's like aaron sorkin says in one of the episodes there's a bloodless coup every four years and you know and no war uh no war comes from the the change of government right which i've always thought is one of the most admirable things more admirable aspects of the american system although it would be interesting uh, there have been so many bloody transitions between monarchies but i can't imagine that there would have been a war over who would have been king of england in say 1936 or whenever uh, edward the eighth ascended to his office um, though I suppose it's possible, but uh, it seems unlikely. But yeah, so anyway, so the, the Crawleys decide that they are going to intervene on behalf of a man who was at the time probably the biggest celebrity in the world. And that, the episode doesn't really go into that in very, in very strong effect either. But this is a guy who was in all the tabloids. This was a guy who was, you know, eligible, ba- the, by far the most eligible bachelor in the world, right? Traveling all over the British Empire, seeing the state of the downtrodden peoples in his shiny top hat. Right. This was this was this is a major figure that we're talking about here. At this point in his career, there's still the possibility that everything's going to come up roses for him as long as he keeps it in his pants, which of course he's not going to do. Um, but, but of course, you know, give me that and three dollars, and you'll get a cup of coffee from Starbucks. Right? It's not a strange thing for a powerful man to be sexually indiscreet. But uh, but the Crawleys decide to intervene on his behalf, and they decide to heist the scandalous letter, which in- indicts him in an affair. Right now, can one of you guys clarify for me exactly what the stakes are of this letter? What, what does this letter specifically say, and what would be the consequences were it to get out into the open? I have the I have the feeling that the contents of the letter imply, or at least that, that determine, make it possible to determine that he is having an affair with the the older brunette that's always hanging around him. Right, which I guess anyone would probably guess, and she is not married. But it gives, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, she's probably she's probably not married. I mean, yeah. you know, Mrs. Is, I don't think she's Wallace Simpson, but but. Uh, you know who he ended up marrying and and abdicating for but but um she's uh even if she's not married it it's embarrassing and and the innuendos are one thing but but you know proof would be another thing but the the stakes are that it would be a scandal right, right. it would be a scandal for the monarchy and in in a time when uh in a the sort of post war era of social change which is kind of exemplified by uh mr blake and his um 
uh, his being like Rob- Robespierre, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic little you know dialogue tidbit in there. Um, lots of lots of good ones actually. Lots of good little dialogue moments in this. Uh, his being like Robespierre um, in this time of of rapid social change and sort of threat to the established order, the monarchy must be preserved because we are mo- we are monarchists, you know. Right. Yes, of course. So yes. Yeah, so I guess then that brings us to the mechanics of the heist. Well, Ben, I know that you really wanted to come on this recap because there was something about this heist that really captivated you. I want to lead you in the direction of the thing that you're excited about. But how about I just ask you, what is it about Grantham's Eleven that gets you going and, and gets you to really excited to want to talk about it? It's just such a... It was at first. It was kind of so jarring that it's like, wow, this is really going the direction of like an elaborate heist done by you know Lady Mary and Lord Grantham, which is just <laughs> such a change of pace. But then they made it work, which I really appreciated about that. Like they, they didn't actually. The characters kind of behaved more or less as you'd expect them. I particularly loved the scene in the, I guess, the drawing room where they're they're trying to lay out this plan to all the other people about like, well, you're going to go to the theater and we're going to play poker and you're going to do this. And, and it's just falling all apart because nobody believes any of this stuff that they're, that they're trying to pull um, because they're not Ocean's Eleven. They're not like skilled at, you know, they're not rusty skilled at, you know, on the long con. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting also how much the... Their their attempts at deception are undone by essentially protocol. That like because what they're trying in America, it'd be relatively easy to say like, oh, we have this. We're going to change the plans tonight, and we're going to play poker after dinner. It's like okay, but this is such a any deviation from the norm immediately raises eyebrows. And I, I just love that scene where they're they're trying to sell it, and it's just falling flat in every single possible way. Like the scene where they're trying to get people to play the card game, and the people are really confused and anxious. Yes. And, and, then, and also, Isabel is like, wants to play cards. Um, and it's like, which I thought was great. It's like, oh, we could play another game. Like, we could, you know, we could play Rummy or Gin. She likes, she likes Rummy, right? Because uh, yeah. that's what she played with, uh, with the, Dowager, the Dowager Countess when the Dowager Countess was recuperating from her illness from her uh, her pneumonia or some such uh, or 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 precipitous the the advan- the pre pneumoniac condition that the the uh, dowager countess had so so okay so part of what makes this exciting for you is that the Granthams have no skills that will lead you to think that they could be capable of doing something like this um, thankfully of course they don't need them because <laughs> Mr Bates has them because they have a convicted felon who could be one of the guys in Ocean's Eleven who happens to work as the valet right uh, which is Mr Bates uh, and Mr Bates first forges the letter that gets them access to Samson's apartment, and then he pickpockets Samson while putting his coat on and manages to secure the letter that way. Um, in, in, in my notes for this episode, I have Bates equals Moriarty, because he's apparently just like a criminal mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's a state-sanctioned Moriarty, and I mean, there are interesting ideas of justice throughout this episode, but he is, right, if, if you accept, I talked a little bit about Weber and the definition of the state as a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, and uh, if, if the Granthams are you know, uh, legitimate, they need to employ specialists in violence, right? Or specialists in, in law breaking, uh, in order to, in order to uphold the law. Right. And I thought that this was an, an interesting parallel. And Pete, you talked last week about trying to read things in parallel in the episode. This, the sense of justice 
here and the sense of justice in the Mr. Bates vengeance murder in the Mr. Yes. Bates honor killing, right? Because that's what it is. You know, it's not an honor honor uh, killing is a tricky thing to say because that would imply no, he killed Anna. Right, killed Anna. Yeah. Sorry, I got it. I got vengeance killing is, is yeah. what I mean. You and, know what I mean? And one thing you guys were I just listened to you guys talking about uh um last week's episode. And one thing that's interesting about Bates's murder here is that I think traditionally a lot of times uh, a man who's doing a murder like this, it's essentially a face-saving gesture that it's in some way he fears that he will be seen as weak if the the murderer is let go. But for Bates, that's clearly not the case. Right. Like nobody knows that this guy is out there and nobody knows that he kill- he's the one who killed him and nobody's ever going to know. And so it's clearly something personal that he feels like there must be a personal sense of justice that he's pursuing. Here. Yeah, all, all he has to do is brood because that guy broods so hard. <laughs> you, you know how hard he is when he broods hard. I mean, we compared him to Steven Seagal last week, and I think the comparison is not entirely inept in that he's like, you know, he's out for justice. You know, he's a one-man army. He operates in secret. You know, he's a four. He's like, he was the toughest guy in prison and in his special forces unit, right? Like, or whatever it was that he was fighting. And now he's, you know, he's he's soft-spoken and he carries a big cane because he has an injury. Um, but yeah, so so Bates is basically the hound for the crawlies is what you're saying. He's yeah, like, exactly. He's like the, the, the barest. He's not really barest. Barristan Selmy, he's much more Sander Clegane, he's much more the sort of like, you know, there are no gallant knights, there are only trained killers, um, but trained killers who wear nice suits can look like gallant knights. See, um, but I, we're, yeah, let's go ahead. I think a more apt comparison might be the, and I cannot remember, the, the agent in the movie Serenity, oh, okay. who basically says like, I have no, like, the, the world requires evil men like me that I have no place in. Mm-mm. So I, right. I think Bates kind of fits more in that mold of like he, he, he recognizes that all this evil stuff he does doesn't really have a place at Downton, but it has to be there in order to keep Downton running. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, okay, so in, order, in terms of inappropriate things or evil things that need to be there to keep things running, did you guys also notice a disparity in the general level of courtesy and gentility between the royals as they're depicted in this episode and the nobles as they're depicted in the episode. And not just the Prince of Wales, but I was thinking about the scene with where Rose is in front of uh, King George as well and curtsies to him. And he's very gruff and not particularly nice. And how they, all, they refer to her father as what? What's the name that they have for him? Shrimpy. Um, shrimpy. Shrimpy, yes. <laughs> How is Shrimpy? And it's like, oh, he served with distinction. You know, Shrimpy is a guy who was, you know, in the Isht in India, right? And, and fought against whatever they were fighting against at the time, which I'm sure they are now fighting in favor of or what have you in the various machinations over there. But, uh, but that, yeah, Shrimpy, they have this casual attitude about these, these men that are sort of risking their lives around the world to aggrandize the glory and honor of the throne and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it was struck me that, that it would, if these were lower-ranking people, the way that they were talking would be really objectionable. But because they are the you know the be-all end-all, um, I don't know. If it, to me, it almost spoke to the historical discomfort between the nobility of England and, and the king of England, which goes all the way back to, you know to the barons under the Plantagenets, right, and the, the relationship between the Anglo-Saxon. Uh, 
structures, social structures that predate the Norman Conquest, and now they were sort of grandfathered in in certain ways into the organization under the the like Norman French conquerors, and how this is the, the Magna Carta and all that stuff has always been sort of about how the barons believe that things need to be done a certain way, and the king comes in and is like, oh, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want, and they're always sort of like, well, there are certain ways that these things are done, and you need to listen to them, and and as long as you do, everything's going to be fine. And when the king gets too uppity in Britain is when there's problems. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but uh, I guess that's what the website's called, so I make no apologies. Uh, did it, was it, I mean, was there anything else that struck you about the social dynamic of introducing royalty? Because this is the first appearance of royalty. I was, thinking, I was thinking of that, and it's like it's such a disjunction in the nightclub when all of a sudden, you know, Rose hits the floor, right, and does that, you know, Shoddy gets low, 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 low. <laughs> Right? She like does a deep curtsy yes, uh, yes. for uh, his royal highness because yes, he's yeah. an he's an HRH right and like it's funny there's there's this this talk uh, Shirley MacLaine talks about like well what you are wait she's not a lady no but she is an honorable and and God bless him Paul Giamatti says who could doubt that uh, <laughs> hey my God save Paul Giamatti. Uh, well, you know, that, that actually, you say that, you're joking, but that actually is a bit of a parallel in that we have two instances of kind of royalty appearing on the show for one of the first times. Although Shirley MacLaine arguably is also this, but a guest actor coming on who is a legit big movie star, right? And sort of every, every other, the relationship of the audience, especially an American movie star in front of an American audience, right? The uh, re- audience is going to have a different relationship with Paul Giamatti's character than we have with anybody else in the movie just because we've seen Paul Giamatti. Giamatti do so much. He's such a big presence in our entertainments. We we know there's a meta casting deal with this guy. You know, he walks in. Who makes a bigger impression when he walks into the scene? Paul Giamatti or the King of England being played by some dude? Right. Well, I'm sure he's being played by somebody <laughs> impressive. I don't want to diminish the man's work, um, but you know what I mean. There's there's multiple kings that come in and and are have different rule books that they're playing from than everybody else. Um, even if uh, even if um, Hugh Bonneville was in Monuments Men, <laughs> discount. discount. <laughs> Which is, I think, yeah, where he was when he was uh, testifying in front of Teapot Dome. On the on the on the poster, though, he is a tiny Hugh, Hugh Bonneville in the <laughs> corner of the poster. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he has like Billy D. Williams status in Empire Strikes Back. Um, although, also Billy D. Williams style charm, I'm sure. Although I have not seen that movie. Um, but yeah, so so there's the heist, which is kind of boring, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of exciting. They sort of walk into the room. They sort of look for a letter, and they sort of don't find it. And the card game sort of goes as expected. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's not too much more to say about that, about that whole that whole plot, other than it was surprising that it happened. Uh, and then what are the, the other big surprise is, of course, our government inspector friend turns out to secretly be a frog that becomes a prince upon being kissed, some, some such. Uh, he is apparently the heir to a large fortune, right? That's a revelation this episode as well. Another king in our midst, or not a king, but another, like, fancy pants fellow in our midst that we didn't quite expect. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, gosh. I don't know. I... I there's there's a bunch of different directions that the episode goes in. Um, is there? I mean, what? Well, so okay. So Matt, you made a couple of notes that you were sending to me. Um, did you do any research on the London season or any reading on the London season to set some of the events here in context? Because it seems like it's a pretty big deal. I was surprised to see that there was a parade and that like people came out. That like people who aren't involved in the debutante scene came out to watch the people involved in the kickoff of the London season walk down the street. 
Uh, is this something that was the case? Is this something that people did historically, or is it was it a different sort? Was it did it start on a holiday? Um, I mean, if we don't know, then we don't know. But I was curious if I, you... I did some research in the sense that I Wikipedia a lot of things. I didn't know the word. I didn't know the term research meant anything else. These okay. days. <laughs> so. so I did. Uh, I did. Um, consult the consult the oracle, and so I can I can read to you from from Wikipedia, but it's a uh, you know I don't know it's it's a thing where all the um, all the families from the country come to London, like the nobility the nobility comes to London, and it has I don't know it 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 uh, is in the interests of the royalty just to pick up on the the themes that you. Uh, bring up before to gather all the nobles in one place, right? So that you can uh, you can control them. So they're not out in their power bases, out in the provinces, you know. And and uh, Robert is not like raising an army of stout Yorkshiremen to you know march on London, uh, but uh, is you know I don't know is there um, CF Versailles, I guess, and and a lot a lot of these sorts of systems. Uh, it uh, so the the season I am given to understand coincided with the sitting of Parliament, and I am quoting verbatim from Wikipedia, and ran from Christmas until midsummer, uh, late June. So um, so the idea, wow. yeah. So it's a it's a it's a long a lengthy time. season. Yeah, it's a long time when it's when it's cool to be there. I was actually yeah, I thought it sort of coincided with like the Broadway season from like fall to fall to spring, but no, you know. Um, Christmas, Christmas special, Christmas till late June. Uh, earlier in this series of Downton Abbey, we heard that Shirley MacLaine was coming like sometime in the summer, and that's that struck me as uh, that struck me as late, mm. you know. And of course, we haven't heard about the London season previously, uh, even though presumably this is something they they like to do as often as they could. I mean, have they talked about it? I don't remember anybody talking about it about Mary being coming out, having her, her uh, debutantery or what have you, or Edith or anything like that. Although presumably they did it then too. I guess they're not there the whole six months. That would be crazy. They do have to be at home and take care of their home stuff. They have church bazaars to run and cricket right. games and things like that. I, I um, think it's also sort of like... Uh, I think it's also sort of like, you know, you go... I, you know, honestly, it's, it's probably like London today, right? Like, all those fancy houses that we see establishing shots of are now run by like Russian oil billionaires or Saudi princes or hedge fund, you know, uh, titans of hedge funds uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut or, or something like that. And they're, they're probably dark most of the year and then light up like a couple weekends a year. Right. And that's what it was. I don't know. That's that's I think what it was like. Can we talk a little bit about how the episode was photographed? Because you're talking about you're talking about those houses. I thought it was really interesting how when the parade was happening, they had to take these really awkward, convoluted camera angles to avoid seeing any of the modern buildings while they were looking around town. I particularly liked uh, when. Lord Grantham looked backward over his shoulder, and you got a very tight, very close, narrow view of the top of the London Monument, right? The Monument to the Great Fire, from the one angle behind which there are no other buildings. Right. Right, which is like sort of three quarters from the right, uh, because it's right on one side of the Thames, and it's sort of all around it are other buildings. Um, 
But this was a, this was they went out and about in actual London, which is a pretty big deal. They haven't done that. This was like when they shut down parts of New York for Die Hard with a Vengeance, like that's a, or for Twenty Eight Days Later when they shut down parts of London. I'm sure they didn't shut down too much of it, but maybe a little bit to go have a little parade and whatnot. It's not even a movie, so I always thought the, the one the one. Uh the one shot of the the parade and they uh, you know they would have it's probably a relatively recent addition the the automobiles to the parade instead of like horse drawn carriages um i th- i thought that that shot was some some decent cgi going down uh mm-hmm. towards buckingham D- buckingham palace cuz that was a pretty wide shot with both sides of the street and the park on either side and and uh you know uh, a parade of 1920s automobiles yeah, yeah. I was definitely wondering while I was watching it how much of that shot was mise-en-scene and how much of it was composited imagery, right? How much of it was actually in front of the camera? Probably not too much. Maybe they were just in a soundstage um, in, in uh, Hoboken, and they were just uh, putting all of London behind them. Um, they shoot it, you know, there, there's an interesting little production thing there, right? They shoot the downstairs scenes in a soundstage, obviously, and the uh, the outside scenes at Highclere Castle, which is an hour away. And so if if you're not, if you're only downstairs, like Daisy never goes to Highclere Castle almost and never really sees the other the other actors the the people who do it and when you see someone walk from upstairs to downstairs or walk from inside the servants hall out into the yard behind the house you're seeing them you know on two different days in two different locations and an hour apart so you can always look at the performances in the, in those things and they don't they don't always match right the action doesn't always match or like the mood of the character uh walking walking out the door doesn't always match one side of the one side of the shot as the other right speaking of which can we talk about the mood of the servant character specifically the introduction of the american servant yeah and how it sort of casts into relief the way that the other servants are acting uh, i thought it was pretty interesting yeah the, the you know I, the, the thing i wrote on my note was ugly americans but not really that uh, just very it's only ugly in contrast to the expectations of downton like he's a very nice, genial guy who's trying to make friends, and everybody's kind of looking at him like he, you know, like he smells funny or stepped in something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he just doesn't. He doesn't do the protocol. He doesn't do any no. of the things that are required of him. And it seems like not only does he not do them, he isn't even aware of them, which right. is a very different direction than they could have gone with it. They could have gone with, you know, oh, you know, I don't do any of those things. I'm from America. Whereas he just has this blank stare on his face, like I don't understand what's happening around me. Um, and, and I guess that marks a, a pretty big sea change in the relative status of America and the UK, I guess, at this at this point, because the American servant doesn't feel like he really should be understanding what's happening in the British household. And I feel like we've run into Americans before where there's a little bit more of an expectation for the American character to observe more of the British customs. But now it seems that the American characters are, you know, they're trying to be nice, but they're not they don't really intend to try to fit in uh, in the British environment. This is shadowed in the, you know, that the downstairs version of that is shadowed upstairs with Mrs. Levinson, who mm-hmm. kind of te- tears Violet a new one about uh, your world is slipping further and further away, you know, saying that America is on the rise, Britain's on the, the downslope. Basically, that she doesn't have to care about all this British nonsense because, you know, history is coming. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too because it's not like Mrs. Levinson is a spring chicken, right? right. Because because part of that part of that sentence, part of what makes that sentence such a dagger is that she's sort of saying you're you're old and you're going to die, which is a, a, a sub. It's actually a sub 
motif in a lot of this episode, the character's aging. I'm thinking about Mrs. Hughes and Carson walking into the ocean together, uh, holding hands, right? Um, this idea that the characters are getting older and that, you know, death is looming for all of them. It is, it is pretty nasty for Shirley MacLaine's character to say that to Dame Maggie Smith's character, for Mrs. Levinson's Day to the Dowager Countess, because Mrs. Levinson is also going to die at some point relatively soon, and it's nice that she, she takes a... Uh, she takes a, a solace in the idea that American economics will continue on the ascent, I suppose, in American culture. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty nasty. It's, uh, it's definitely nothing kind about it. Uh, uh, well, right. The, I mean, in what sense, what could be the basis of her, her claim? It's not just that, that she is, you know, it's not just that she is uh, – Young, because she is manifestly not young. It's that she's sort of forward-looking, and that Maggie Smith is is sort of backward-looking. But th- that that sort of comes at a price, right? Like remember last week when the children were ushered in, and uh, and Maggie Smith says, uh, "It's time for you to change and for me to go." You know, uh, what Shirley MacLaine wants to sort of stay too long, stay too long at the party, and I think the show is not entirely uncritical of that, though it's presented as kind of a dagger. Uh, a dagger to Maggie Smith. I think the bulk of the show is not really behind Shirley MacLaine because it involves the pleasures of kind of being backward looking and kind of having these like elaborate fantasies about, you know, uh, I don't know, walking up a, a stair, walking up the stairs with a, a phalanx of red coated, uh, you know, footmen or something like that, mm-hmm. separating the men from the women and going and hitting the flow. Uh, mm-hmm. And curtsying very, very deeply. Like we can't, we can't be on the side of Shirley MacLaine because we're on the side of Downton Abbey. You know, right? And speaking of walking <laughs> upstairs, isn't this the episode where there's another very uh, portentous walking up of stairs that takes place, where uh, where Tom's lady goes upstairs? Or did that happen in the last? Episode? No, that was that that was this one. Yeah, that was this episode. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was. So where where she wants to ascend the stair, right? And I kept, I think, I thought when she said that, when she not she didn't say ascend the stair, but would walk up into the the area she referred to it very formally and i thought of like obviously it's early but i thought of gone with the wind and movie and movie scenes where the character kind of sweeps the woman beautifully sort of sweeps down the stair like she's walking on a cloud and that there's a real romance to the staircases in these sorts of places uh and that of course she wanted to go upstairs she didn't seem to be trying to seduce tom and saying let's go upstairs she seemed to legitimately like want to walk around and see the things that were up there and kind of be up there and be in that elevated state when everybody wasn't around i mean did you guys have a take because obviously thomas tries to pin this on tom and uh or sorry uh Branson. Oh, God. Branson. No, no, I, I was thinking, what is Thomas's last name now? Because he has to go Barrow. by his last name. Barrow. Barrow. Ah. Barrow and Branson and Thomas and Tom. This doesn't really help all that much. Uh, but yeah, Barrow attempts to pin it on Branson. Um, as no, a, no he's, he's Tom you know, now. He's Tom. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, that, that's it. That's it. I'm going like, to throw my headset down. Though, though, there's, a great, there's a great Maggie Smithism when he asks her to dance, right? Where, and he says, uh, well, at least I can trust you to steer. <laughs> I mean, what? Why? Is, oh, because he's a chauffeur, or what? Yeah, is the, exactly. Because he yeah. drive. Because he drives. He's yeah. part of the drive. He's part of the driving class. You see. 
Ah, uh, I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Well, yeah. how about this? How about the Thomas Tom plot as a parallel to the heist on the Prince of Wales? The idea that there's a scandal because Tom was in the house with a woman upstairs, unsupervised or unobserved, and that this would potentially be bad for people were it to sort of get out. But nobody is sticking up uh, for for Tom in particular, right? Nobody's like going to heist Thomas's house or whatever i don't know i I think it's different i mean right like in that analogy um uh thomas barrow is uh is analogous to the card sharp right because he's the he's the guy holding the or stealing stealing the letter or wanting wanting to do the thing for private for private good and uh and i you know i don't know i have more to say about miss bunting and tom but but ben you wanted to jump in it's, it is interesting that in both of these plot lines, the the clear bad guy, like this, they're, these are both kind of mustache twirling villains. Uh, they're essentially in favor of truth. That normally we we say you know truth will out, and that the that the, you can't go wrong by telling the truth. But in both cases, uh, Barrow and uh, what's the guy's name, uh, the, the card shark, are only planning on telling the truth. It's not like they're planting lies about the Prince of Wales or about Branson. Um, they're just planning on spreading what is in some sense true, but in a way that we don't support because it's kind of just not proper. Uh, I mean, I yeah, quite... I mean, but he's, well, Branson wants to cast aspersions. I mean, yes, there is a oh, nugget, yeah. there is a nugget of truth, um, which is that, you know, they were, they were upstairs together. I think being upstairs means different things. I mean, I think she's trying not to, to climb the ladder of society. I think she's a representative of like a post aristocratic age, but she sees it as a kind of museum. Like she sees it as a kind of, uh, uh, Disneyland ride. And why shouldn't she be able to, to go on the Disneyland ride? And, and for Tom, this, this, this act and this place, uh, and this vantage from up among the be- bedrooms is freighted with all kinds of of uh, private meanings, and it's those uh, and it's those private meanings which are sort of shared by the family that uh, Barrow wants to to capitalize on in order to get the uh, in order to get. Um, some advantage, some some sharing innuendos, right? Yeah, I like how you're like in order to get uh because uh, there is the issue of what is what is Thomas really at all trying to accomplish this entire season? This sort of and, sour grit, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With with Baxter and with everything here, it gets we get the now I have to I still have to call him Sir uh, plot rearing its ugly head again. I mean, I thought we had sort of dealt with that, but yeah, yeah. And anyway. this this is also I don't know I, I kind of call it a sitcom plot in the sense like it could easily be handled with a single sentence from. Uh, Branson to Lord Grantham of oh I had like I had I showed someone around the house like, yeah. that's all. like yeah. don't worry about it I had someone around that I showed yeah. someone around the house yes and she was interested in the genealogies and like hey let me ask you about all of the different cadet houses of House Grantham or what happened <laughs> <laughs> and the coats of arms like why you know what's the deal with that like that's kind of interesting stuff but yeah I don't know it's uh there is a certain convenience that the show can enjoy because we don't really know what things are actually offensive to these people. So anything that seems sort of vaguely offensive can be trumped up without really being held accountable for it. But I would suspect that him having somebody at the house. Well, that, okay, you know what? Let's 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 ask a little deeper into what Matt was saying before. To what extent is Downton Abbey a museum at this point? I mean, it's referred to as such a couple times. There's definitely a few shots in this episode in particular that really focus on the pieces of art on the walls. I'm thinking that there's a shot 
shot over uh, Branson's shoulder that shows the portrait, which I think is supposed to be a famous portrait, right, that supposedly is hanging in Downton Abbey of this woman in a blue dress. Um, and Downton has like a big art collection and is – and uh, she refers to it as a museum, right? Literally. She says that it's just like this other museum that she gets to walk around in. And so if the family – the family lives there, but the family's job is to take care of it, right? The relationship between the Crawleys and Downton Abbey is that Downton Abbey is their charge as much it is, as it might be their property, right? Like they – it is a – it is a – has a role in the community, um, Certainly, you know, there's that wonderful scene earlier on in the show where Lord Grantham is walking towards it and says, this is my life's work, right? This house is this thing that's separate from him. And it is a constructed art and cultural object to an extent, even in the sense that it's also a place where people live. So what is it about it that makes it different from a museum? I guess it's that people can't just go in and see things, but it's certainly not just a regular domicile. Uh, th- there's an interesting play. It's called Posh, and it's by uh, a playwright named Laura Wade. And it's about a, um, a sort of, what is it, a dining club, uh, which is a thing at Oxford. And the, the tradition of this, this dining club is this sort of par- parodied by Evelyn Waugh in Decline and Fall, if you've read that. Um, they, they go out to a, uh, to a restaurant or in a, a club or an establishment or something like this, uh, have dinner and, uh, trash the place, get, get super drunk and just leave, uh, unimaginable chaos in their, in their wake. And they, um, uh, uh, which is, you know, apparently a thing and they're all upper class, they're all upper class toffs. Right. Um, and they talk about in this play uh, having and it takes place in the present day in 2010 or whenever, whenever it was written. They talk about having to rent out their houses their or to like museums, to the National Trust or something like that, like uh, turning parts of their uh, aristocratic family seats like Blenheim Palace or something like that is a famous one that I happen to have been to where you can take a tour and walk through the, you know, uh, incredible Downton Abbey-esque um, Sort of Disneyland experience of you know walking on a on a path through these uh, stately homes and and stuff like that. We're not quite at that level yet because like the the Downton is is a public good, but it's sort of enjoyed privately, right? And uh, which is the point that I that I wanted to make. We we alone have access uh, access to it, um, but it's important it's important that that it be. Here and it. This reminds me of something that I think was said explicitly in the first season. That you know, I don't know. It's important that someone still is wearing white tie and tails to dinner, right? Someone still uh, is doing it right somewhere. And the fact of that being done, kind of like uh, I don't know, kind of like a religious order offering its you know prayers and atonement, um, unknown and unheard in some monastery out in the sticks, right? Like that is important spiritually for humanity that those things are going on uh so too is this is this important spiritually so it's this very selfish idea still of what the the um of what the public good that downton serves is and what kind of public good uh downton downton abbey is but but yes it's it's transitioning into this we are we are caretakers of this thing for you know for those to come yeah, it is interesting. Uh, I, oh, go ahead, Ben. I was, I was, I was going to say something similar in answer to the question of what separates from. Is it a museum? Is a museum because it's open to the public? 
Like it's it's a museum's purpose is we preserve art or we preserve this thing so that people can come enjoy it because it has this utilitarian value of a kind of humanistic value of people can come enjoy it. Whereas the Downton is more, we keep these things because it's important to keep these things, whether or not anybody ever comes to see them. It's kind of like a Kantian idea of like these things have value that must be preserved even if nobody ever comes to see them or even if nobody, you know, even if the world ends tomorrow, it's worth, it's worth wearing white tie and tails to dinner tonight. Right, right. Interesting. I thought it was interesting to think about it one level deeper or one level farther out where we are watching a show that is talking about the importance of these exhibitionist places being privately held in which actors are playing the parts of the people who want to hold them private and it is being broadcast over like many, many kinds of media. Right. Like, that is an interesting – it's an interesting meta televisory moment to be watching Branson not really wanting to bring the woman upstairs to look at the house. Right. And then the sense of sort of being on the side of Branson and kind of understanding because we kind of buy into the mythology of the show. You know, we kind of buy into the things that the Crawleys value. Uh, certainly we believe in people, not in types. But uh, – the idea that we would say, yes, maybe it is inappropriate for him to bring her up the stairs. But we've been up the stairs many times because it's a television show and the camera goes up there and we follow it. So it is interesting It is interesting from the standpoint of how does this affect our own thinking or how is our own thinking about property, about social change influenced by the fact that we get to feel like we're on the inside. We get to feel like we are the privileged because we get to be in the cameras that go upstairs. Um, how much differently would we feel about Downton Abbey if the camera never went upstairs? Uh, and how much, how differently would we feel about the Crawley's general requirements that people not go upstairs? Uh, and how in general would we feel? Like, what is about the support in general for things similar to, you know, things that are monarchistic, things that are aristocratic, like the idea of Downton Abbey as a food producer that the government supports, as opposed to something that needs to have its resources reapportioned so that there's, you know, there's enough pork to feed the huddled masses during the blitz that's coming, you know, in a, in a scant 15 years or so, right? Uh, it, it's definitely, there's a, um, there's a bit of a hypocrisy that sneaks in there, I think, if we really side with the Crawleys, because we get to think we're one of the Crawleys. And we also get to think that everyone watching the show is one of the Crawleys, um, even as we also see the, the things that the people downstairs are doing. It's just it's, – it's interesting. It's ironic, I think. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a note of happy and a note of sad in there a little bit. Um, so we're, we're starting to run wow. a little bit long on time. Okay, oh, that Watt, much? Watt Tyler. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, that was a reference in the show that was pretty fun. Why do you unpack that one a little bit? <laughs> yeah. uh, Watt Tyler, le- well, it's been, it's been a while. Let me Wikipedia him, but he led the Peasants' Revolt. I'm right? sorry. I meant, why, don't you, why don't you research it, Matt? <laughs> yeah. And let us know the, your findings. No, the one, so. my, one, my one cocktail party fact about him is that he led the, the Peasants' Revolt, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, beyond that, I have to go to Wikipedia. So Watt Tyler, it's a joke that who makes this? Is it Carson makes of course, the joke? Of about, course, yeah. <laughs> Carson, I'm sorry, Carson is a pig in in poop in this episode, right? Like, and at the end, like him conducting the damn orchestra when the Prince of Wales comes or the the Duke of Windsor comes in, right? Come on, you know, like Carson is, you know, could die and go to heaven and and be a happy man at this point. Yeah. 
that's wonderful. So yeah, so this is a this is a historical figure from the 1300s who did did something that is done on numerous occasions in British history, which is march a whole bunch of people toward London to say like, "Hey, King, stop doing this nonsense." Uh, and he experienced what often happens to such people, which is the king says, "Sure, let's talk about it," and then he's murdered. Right. Like, <laughs> Uh, although I think Henry VIII did this, uh, but he didn't murder them. He just – he didn't murder them at first, right? He sort of promised them what they wanted and then murdered them later, <laughs> um, <laughs> like after everyone had gone home. Because they, 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 England has this problem where it doesn't take that long to walk across it. So people, <laughs> like America doesn't have this problem so much. I mean when we have the marches, people have to plan them for a long time. Yeah, right. But people, people from all over England can just walk to London. I mean it'll take <laughs> well, we drive – we just drive to the National Mall and we walk down the National Mall because that's a nice manageable distance. <laughs> they are winded by the time we get to the <laughs> right. yes, to, tear, to tear apart the foundations of, of power, we have to drive on the federally funded internet, interstate highway system. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But yeah, so it's a lovely, a lovely little jibe that, uh, and I wonder, I do wonder whether people in the UK, these are sort of passing references, whether they would have immediately recognized Edward the Eighth, or you know, the guy who would become Edward the Eighth. Certainly, King George the Fifth has a very distinct mustache uh, and beard ensemble, uh, bespeaking his German ancestry as well, right? Like that he's from Victoria's house. He's the guy who changed the name of the house from Saxony, whatnot, to Windsor. So he looks a little bit more Germanic. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, these are just fun little things. We're we're at the tidbit part of the recap. Yeah, now. sure. Well, I mean, the the <laughs> maybe we can close out with with this sort of. Uh, with an evaluation of where we are and what we're being set up for. Like one, one uh, is that the baby is coming to Downton and I, for one, am delighted because <laughs> the way you make more good Downton Abbey is you put Edith's baby right in the path of, of everybody else. Right. Yes. That's so that's fantastic. Um, Tony is, is uh, an emo little wimp uh, talking about, well, have you thought about how much I like you and stuff? Uh, and, and Mary is friend zoning him pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and uh, you know with with a bunch of of passive aggressive BS like aren't you happy I'm happy, yeah. um, and uh, Carson is wading into the sea and this is the last this is the last thing we see uh, is Mrs Hughes and Carson holding hands wading uh, wading into the water and there's even a cutaway to uh, Miss Patmore at Alia sitting on the beach uh, who sort of turn their heads to look at this momentous occasion uh, much as the three women uh, Edith um, Edith Rose and uh, not Cora, but the third uh, one. Violet? No. Yeah, maybe. Uh, leaned forward to, to look at, at Mary's suitors. Um, and Rose asked, you know, oh, what's a group noun for suitors? You know, which is great. I love that these are these people's problems. You know, <laughs> what is a good, you know, exaltation of Larks-esque uh, noun for, uh, for suitors? Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know, sort of Carson and Mrs. Hughes wading into the sea seems to me to be a very provocative image. And the um, uh, 
also, the, the, also a more fitting ending to this season than the actual ending of this season was. Like, because recall, this episode was separated by by weeks and weeks, or, or maybe even months, from the bulk of the from the bulk of the rest of the fourth series of of Downton Abbey, and was not run together as we have it here. But it seems like it's sort of made to be run together uh, much more than like the trip to the Highlands was. Uh, and it it also provides a uh, a more satisfying ending, right? Than uh, than the actual ending of the season in in American Part Seven, British Episode Eight did, uh, with the you know the the desire of suitors uh, and everyone kind of gawking at them, you know. Right, right, right. And didn't yeah, Cora right. do a great job with the the church bazaar? But what I mean, maybe we can end with like, what is what what do you make of them them walking walking into the sea? You know, some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them. Where to choose their place of rest and providence, their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden. Through Eden. Yeah. Took, I was going to say it with you. Oh, took their solitary, it took, probably. No. <laughs> <laughs> through Eden took, took their, their solitary, solitary way. So, what do you have to say about all this stuff that Matt just. So, I, I, think, I think that's right that the, the end of the last episode was kind of almost the opposite of what Downton is really is when it is at its best Downton is is dealing with the fact that there's this long institution with a storied history and possibly some value facing a tsunami of social change mm. that the, the 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 only way they're going to get through it is by you know somehow adapting and figuring out how to, and the last episode is basically like nope we we figured out the church bazaar just fine we're gonna have tea and it's gonna be like this forever the yeah. end. <laughs> uh, whereas this episode I think uh, kind of places Downton it, in the popular culture I guess as a take my hand and <laughs> steady yourself against the old times because yeah. the ocean is coming yep, yep. and like that, to some extent that is going to like I don't know Downton does bigger time jumps than I think is common in American television. And so I think before Downton is over, we're going to see the Great Depression, which is like a huge change coming. Mm, yes. But I think, yeah, I think they'll be Fred, holding each other's hands. They will. That's true. And I think from what you guys have been saying, I was also inspired, and maybe we'll, we'll also end with this, that what does it mean to be kind of thrown a lifeline and to be sort of flattered that the lifeline has been thrown to you. What does it mean for Ivy to have been invited to go to America and how happy she is to have been invited so that she has the opportunity to say no, right? Like, it's like, what does it mean to these people to be sort of validated by the progress, by the people who are moving forward? It's like, you could come too, and they're like, oh, I don't want to, but thank you so much for asking me, because I really need to know. You know, I need to know that even though I'm, I'm somewhat comfortable with my time ending, but I could not bear not being at least invited to move forward with all of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's not that I want to live forever, it's just that I want to be asked. Right. And uh, and that that would be enough for me. 
uh, that would be enough. Um, and perhaps this is enough. Perhaps this is enough for this season of Downton Abbey for us. And we will be moving on with the Overthinking It TV recap shows. Are you, you guys are still doing community recaps? Yeah, that when, when commu- community has been on a break during the Olympics. But when it, when it comes back, we're going to keep going with community. And those will come out. We're doing those on video. So those will come out on video as well as... Uh, uh, on this this podcast feed, and then we'll probably have a little break before Game of Thrones starts, and so we'll we'll uh, perhaps do a couple of pop fixers. Though I haven't Perfect. cleared that with you, Pete, but we'll do a couple of pop fixers, which you can subscribe to at its own uh, at its own feed uh, on Overthinking It. Oh, when the feed when that feed, I think the the return of pop fixers will coincide with a feed for it. Great. Excellent. Well, that's exciting news. <laughs> and for this and more, as well as all of our wonderful written content and other video content, and the conversations in the comments, one of the most positive and accepting uh, comment communities I've ever encountered on the web, one that I think we've curated and, and is pretty special, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't... doesn't. Deserve. Deserve.